Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith. In previous episodes, I have mentioned in passing that I was extremely involved in Mormon apologetics back during the decade of the 1980s, but I haven't gone into a lot of detail regarding that subject. Tonight, I want to talk about some of the experiences I had during the 1980s with Mormon apologetics and then end with a special surprise for listeners of this podcast. As you probably know by now, I joined the LDS Church fresh out of high school back in June of 1978. And although I had never been a member of a Christian church or any other church for that matter prior to my joining the LDS Church, I nevertheless had a culturally assimilated respect for the Bible. I had never read the Bible, and yet I believed it to be the Word of God. So when I was taking the missionary discussions, and the missionaries were teaching me about the Godhead from the LDS point of view, I asked about the doctrine of the Trinity, and whether that was not true. Because, as I say, although I had never read the Bible, and although I had never studied Christianity or the creeds, I had the idea that the Trinity was the correct concept of God, and that because it was the correct concept of God, almost universally believed amongst Christians, it must therefore be in the Bible. Well, no sooner had I asked the question than the missionary who was teaching me quickly opened up his Bible to Matthew chapter 3 and read to me the account of the baptism of Jesus in which all three members of the Godhead are represented as being in the same place at the same time, but described in such a way as to apparently be separate individual persons. I'm sure you know the story. Jesus is on the earth getting baptized, the voice of God comes from heaven, and the Holy Ghost descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. All three members of the Godhead, same place, same time, but manifested differently. I remember being somewhat surprised that the doctrine of the Trinity could be so easily refuted from the pages of the Bible itself, the very Bible that the Christians who believe the Trinity profess to be the Word of God. And because of my belief in the Bible to be the Word of God, and because of my baptism into the LDS Church, it became very important to me that the LDS Church and its teachings and its doctrines and its structure be reflected in the teachings of the Bible. Or put another way, it became very important to me to be able to prove Mormonism true by the Bible. Shortly after I joined the church, my brother, who was a Jehovah's Witness, brought home some anti-Mormon literature for me to read. I did read it. I read that there were a number of criticisms about the LDS Church, criticisms that the missionaries had never told me about, and I remember it dropped me down a peg. One of the criticisms in this anti-Mormon literature, which was called The Mormon File, was that Brigham Young had taught that Adam was God. Well, this was very different from what the missionaries had told me. This caused me a lot of consternation. Today, I would say cognitive dissonance. And it upset me so much that I decided not to go to church that following Sunday. I felt dark inside. I felt confused, and I didn't know how to deal with it except to not go to church. Well, not going to church only made me feel worse. So I pulled myself together, and I went to a later meeting at the same stake center. I remember approaching the chapel doors for that later meeting, and there were two missionaries, one on either side of the door, greeting people as they came in. These were not the missionaries who had taught me. These were missionaries who were assigned to this different ward. Now, I could have contacted the missionaries who taught me, or I could have contacted my best friend, who was a member in the church and who was the fellow who baptized me, or I could have contacted any number of other friends. I had in the church and asked them this question, but for some reason I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed that I had this question. I felt ashamed that I had stumbled upon this information. Now, rationally, it doesn't make any sense, but if you've experienced what I'm talking about, you'll know what I mean. But these two missionaries, I did not know from Adam, so I approached them boldly and I asked them, do we believe that Adam is God? They both looked at each other somewhat surprised and turned back to me and said, No, and I was so relieved by the fact that we did not believe that Adam was God. And I was able to put that item on the shelf, at least for a while. Another criticism in the Mormon file was that there had been over 3,000 changes in the Book of Mormon since it came off the press in 1830. How could this be if the Book of Mormon was really the Word of God, and if it had been dictated by the gift and power of God, as Joseph Smith claimed? Well, that Sunday night, there was a fireside at the church, 
And I felt like I needed to go to the fireside. I had missed my regular meetings. I felt, let me go to this fireside. It was not easy for me to go to this fireside. I still felt depressed. I still felt dark inside. I still felt wounded. But I girded up my loins. I fresh courage took and I went to the fireside anyway. It was held in the Relief Society room of the Stake Center. And the subject of the fireside had to do with a fellow who made small models of things that were described in the Book of Mormon. For instance, he had made a model of the Liahona. He had made a model of the gold plates. He had made a model of Nephi's ship. And the idea was that he would tell the stories about the Book of Mormon, and then he would pass around these models that he had spent hours, I'm sure, working on around the audience so they could see them and look at them while he was telling the stories from the Book of Mormon. When the fireside was almost over, the speaker stopped what he was saying, and he asked, is anybody here not a member of the LDS Church? Well, nobody raised their hand, so apparently he felt safe in going forward. He said, do you know what? There are some people who criticized the Book of Mormon because there have been more than 3,000 changes made in it since it came off the press in 1830. Well, you can imagine, my ears certainly perked up. He then explained how all these changes were simply corrections for grammar, for spelling, for syntax, and that none of these changes in the Book of Mormon altered the meaning of any of the passages. I was elated. I felt this huge load lift off my shoulders. I saw this as an answer to prayer. God knew that I was concerned about this issue with the Book of Mormon. I went ahead, and even though it was difficult, I went to this fireside, and at the end of this fireside, what should happen but that the speaker should be impressed to answer my question, my concern about the Book of Mormon. From this experience, I learned not only that there were criticisms of the church and criticisms of the Book of Mormon, but that there were good answers to those criticisms. And I wanted to be the guy who knew the answers to those criticisms. So in order to be that guy, I first had to know what the criticisms were. I remember once in the small town in which I lived, this is still back before my mission, going into the local Christian bookstore to find anti-Mormon literature. Now, I knew that this is not something that I was supposed to do. This is not something that was encouraged for members of the church to do. In fact, they were discouraged from doing this, but I did it anyway. And I went into the Christian bookstore. I remember finding a book called Will the Saints Go Marching In by Floyd McElveen. I purchased it. I probably put it in a brown paper bag. I took it home and I began reading. And that started my career as a defender of the faith and my interest in Mormon apologetics that lasted, as I say, all the way through the 1980s, before I moved on to other areas of interest related to Mormonism. But during the 1980s, I immersed myself in the subject of Mormon apologetics. I learned pretty much every argument there is against the LDS Church and the answer for those criticisms, the faithful answer for those criticisms. I went to the MTC in November of 1979 on my mission call to Japan, and while I was there, I went down to the MTC bookstore. Now, this was a very small bookstore at the time. There were not a whole lot of books in the MTC bookstore, but one of the books that was there was by a fellow named Roger S. Gunn, G-U-N-N, and it was titled Mormonism, Challenge and Defense. It was a very thick book. It was paperback. And in it, this person, Roger S. Gunn, told of his debate with a Church of Christ minister on the subject of whether Mormonism really was true, whether Mormonism really was supported by the Bible, or whether it was the Church of Christ that should be awarded that sobriquet. In the middle of what can only be described as a very hectic and packed schedule at the MTC, what with learning Japanese, what with doing everything that a missionary does at the MTC, I also found time to devour this book, Mormonism, Challenge and Defense. I loved the fact that it showed how Mormonism really was supported by the Bible, how the Bible really proved that Mormonism was true. And I also love the idea of this member, Roger S. Gunn, defending the faith, even publicly and against a minister of another religion. That became sort of a dream of mine, to be able to publicly debate a minister of another religion and to confute him as soundly and thoroughly as Roger S. Gunn did this particular Church of Christ minister. Well, as fate would have it, about 10 years later, I was able to have a public debate 
with a Church of Christ minister. It was not public in the sense that we got up and spoke before an audience because strangely, leaders of the church by the 1980s were starting to discourage members from having public debates with other ministers. Although it was something that happened very frequently in the earlier days of the church and even up to the 1920s and 1930s, by the 1980s, the message had shifted and members were discouraged from having debates with ministers, or anybody else for that matter. Public debates were something that a good Mormon was not supposed to do anymore. Because of this, and my desire to follow the teachings of the brethren about not having public debates, we ended up having our debate in written form in the magazine for The Church of Christ that would be sort of The Church of Christ's version of The Enzyme magazine. And ultimately, a member of The Church of Christ over on the East Coast read our debate and asked us if we would both record our separate parts of the debate on tape so that he could play it for a religious radio show that he hosted on the East Coast, which we agreed to do. After our debate was published, I remember getting a number of letters from Church of Christ members who had read the debate and wanted to reach out to me to tell me their thoughts about it. I remember being quite surprised that even though it was clear as day that I beat the stuffing out of this Church of Christ minister in the debate, every single member of the Church of Christ who wrote to me saw it 180 degrees the other way. I was the one who got the stuffing beat out of me. Shortly after I got back from my mission in 1981, a friend of mine came to me with concerns about some anti-Mormon literature that a concerned member of her family had given her because she was studying the LDS church. She did eventually join the church. But as happens frequently, when somebody starts investigating the church and family members or friends find out about it, a gift of anti-Mormon literature is frequently in the cards. So she had read this book. I believe it was called answering Mormon's questions. It wasn't a very thick book, but it had caused her enough concern to come to me about it. So I answered her questions to her satisfaction, but I didn't stop there. I wanted to answer all 33 of the questions in this book. The format of this book was that there were 33 chapters. Each chapter would start with a stereotypical question put into the mouth of a Mormon, and then the rest of the chapter was how the born-again Christian or the fundamentalist Christian should respond to that question in order to show that the Mormon is out of his or her mind. I decided to go and research this book, and I ended up writing a lengthy manuscript which responded to all of these answers to hypothetical Mormon questions. My manuscript was never published. I don't even know where it is anymore. But the process of going through and doing that research and study on my own helped familiarize myself with even more of the criticisms that anti-Mormons use against the LDS Church and also helped me find out some of the less than forthright methods that anti-Mormons will use in order to show that Mormons are wrong. This is more than just a difference of interpretation about what a particular Bible scripture might say. This has to do with quoting things out of context from Mormon sources in order to make them sound like they are saying something that they are not actually saying. The 1980s was also the decade in which the Godmakers was big. I don't know if you remember the Godmakers. The Godmakers was a book that was written by a fellow named Ed Decker. Now, Ed Decker had started a ministry called Saints Alive, Ex-Mormons for Jesus. And he had started that ministry even as early as the 1970s. But in the early 1980s, he wrote a book. The book was called The Godmakers. And what really popularized the book was that he made a movie out of it. The movie was also called The Godmakers. And Ed Decker or his associates would take this movie around to different churches and show it throughout the country or any place that they could get an audience. Well, it was the early 1980s, and I saw in the local newspaper that there was an ad that had been placed saying that the Godmakers was going to be shown at a local Baptist church in Austin, Texas, and that one of the people who appeared in the film was going to be showing the film and answering any questions after the film. His name was Dick Baer, B-A-E-R. I decided I wanted to be in attendance. I wanted to see that movie, and I wanted to be able to ask Dick Bear a question or two when he was done with the presentation. So I got a couple of friends of mine from the young adult ward to go with me, and we showed up at the Baptist church on that evening in order to see the movie. I made sure that I sat front and center in the congregation, and not only that, I wore a bright yellow t-shirt to the event, and on the front of the t-shirt it said in big cursive writing, I'd rather be Mormon. So Dick Bear showed the film 
opened it up for questions and answers, and I asked my question in front of everybody else, and Dick Bear gave his answer. I have to tell you, I'm sorry, I can't remember the question that I asked Dick Bear, but I do know that he answered it in some fashion, and then he started asking me questions in front of the audience, and we had a bit of a back and forth there for a while. At the end of that, believe it or not, neither of us managed to change the other's mind on the subject of religion, but Dick Bear did call me out in front of the audience and commend me for being a Mormon who was not afraid to go and listen to Dick Bear present the Godmakers and ask questions and answer questions about his faith. After the presentation, I do remember that there was an older lady who came up to me. She was obviously a member of the congregation, as was pretty much everybody else there, with the exception of three Mormons. And she grabbed my arm, and she started shaking my arm and kind of shaking me. And as she was shaking me, she was saying, why is it that we don't have young people in our church like you? The way she was saying it and the way she was acting seemed a little more to me like an accusation than a compliment. So I told her, well, the reason that you don't have... <laughs> the reason you don't have young people like me in your church is because when they become like me, they join the Mormons. <laughs> yes, I actually said that. Let me see if there's anything else here that I need to talk about. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't. Okay. So without going into the names of all the books that I've read, and I've listed a lot of them down here, but I'm not going to bore you with them and what's in them. Suffice it to say that during the 1980s, I was immersed in reading anything and everything that had to do with Mormon apologetics. I discovered the Foundation for Ancient Research in Mormon Studies, i.e. Farms, which was a clearinghouse of scholarly information related to Mormonism, a large portion of which was devoted to Mormon apologetics, and I got everything that they had on the subject as well. By the end of the 1980s, I considered myself to be well-versed in the subject of Mormon apologetics. Now, during this time period, I had been going to college at the University of Texas at Austin, both as an undergraduate during the first part of the 1980s and also to law school in the second part of the 1980s. During that time period, I had been going to institute class. I went to an institute class every semester as we were encouraged to do, but there was never any institute class on the subject of Mormon apologetics, and I considered this to be a significant omission in the institute curricula. Over the 10 years that I had been going to Institute, I developed a pretty good relationship with the director of the Institute there named Brother Sill. And I approached him with the idea of an Institute class on Mormon apologetics. It would be taught by me. I would create the entire curriculum for the 12-week course, and we would call it Defending the Faith. Well, ultimately, I prevailed upon Brother Sill to let me teach that course on Defending the Faith as an institute class at the University of Texas at Austin during the spring semester of 1989, which was also my last semester in law school. And now for the surprise. I not only prepared all 12 lessons and delivered them at the University of Texas at Austin Institute building in the spring of 1989, I recorded all 12 of the lectures. And not only did I record all 12 of the lectures, I have the tapes with me to this day. They have been sitting gathering dust for 30 years. And I contacted Bill Real because I realized that this being right now May of 2019, it has been exactly 30 years since I gave this series of lectures in the spring of 1989. And I wanted to commemorate it in some way by making those lectures available to my audience. But they're on cassette tape. How am I going to get 12 lectures that are on cassette tape so that they can be played on Radio Free Mormon? A couple of weeks ago, I called Bill Real and I asked him that question. And he immediately came up with the answer. The answer was a device that was specifically made to convert cassette tapes over to MP3 files. It looks like a Walkman, and you put the tape into the Walkman, you plug it in, you stick a flash drive into the USB port, and then push play. And miracle of miracles, the lectures are converted from cassette tape to an MP3 file, which I can then upload into the software program I use to record the podcast, send it to Bill Reel, he does his magic, and voila, we have, through the miracle of modern technology, Radio Free Mormon from 30 years ago, teaching his institute class on defending the faith. Now, while I think it is fair to say that I would not agree with all the arguments I make in this lecture series, or agree with all the conclusions that I make in this lecture series, I certainly did believe those arguments and those conclusions at the time I gave these lectures. And I thought there might be some value 
in providing these lectures, not only as a historical curiosity, but also as a resource for any members of the church who are currently troubled by criticisms that they're hearing about the LDS Church and are seeking to find answers, faithful answers, that will keep them in the church. That was the entire purpose for giving this lecture series 30 years ago, to keep people in the church. And if you want to try and stay in the church, or if you know someone who does, and they're looking for answers, I don't think you will find any better answers or any better lecture series for that purpose. So with that introduction, I am now going to play the first lecture of the Institute class I designed and gave 30 years ago, titled Defending the Faith. I hope you enjoy it. Play the tape. Well, my name is Radio Free Mormon. I'm the instructor in this class, and uh, I think this class is going to be a lot of fun. I really do. Let me give you a brief overview of the subjects we'll be covering today. Today's class is an introductory class to the uh, overall series of classes. Um, the first thing deals with the different type of di types of criticisms about the church. Then we'll go into the purpose of this course. After that, we'll talk about who am I and why am I teaching this course. And uh, next, how you can become a defender of the faith. And lastly, something that will hopefully be useful, two answers, two ways to respond to people if you don't know the answer. Okay? So, beginning... Uh, I have here a number of types of uh, criticisms of the church written out in book form. First off, there's a number of different pamphlets that are available, which I probably wouldn't recommend, but just to show you that there are a great deal of critical materials of the church out there, you can see all these different types of things. Um, they go from the small pamphlets up to larger books. Who really wrote the Book of Mormon? It's called A Startling New Discovery. Well, it's really not startling or new. It's actually just the old Solomon Spaulding theory revamped and brought out there in the late 1970s. But for people who never heard of it before, I guess it is a startling new discovery. Then here's an old classic, The Changing World of Mormonism by Gerald and Sandra Tanner. And that is a, a very, very large book. Here's The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. He has a section in it especially devoted to us and then a lot of other sections devoted to other different types of uh, religious groups with whom he doesn't agree. He also has an entire book that I don't have up here called The Maze of Mormonism, which is a, a book about this size, which he devoted exclusively to our church. And then there's a few other things here, uh, how to respond to the Latter-day Saints and witnessing to the Mormons so that you can bring them to Christ. I'll just put these up here. I show these to you just to let you know, once again, that there is a great deal of activity aimed against the church, mainly aimed against, first, uh, having anybody listen to the missionaries, having anybody listen to what members of our church have to teach, and probably secondarily, against getting members of our church out of our church. Uh, here's another one. This is uh, my copy. It's called Will the Saints Go Marching In? It came out in about 1977. It was later uh, redone as The Mormon Illusion, which you may have heard of by that title. I don't know. It's much more famous under The Mormon Illusion. So that's another one. And of course, uh, I think probably one of the most famous ones that you'd be familiar with is called The God Makers. Uh, that's a very famous book. I don't have it represented up here. I guess I have it represented in proxy by this book called The Truth About the God Makers, which is a response to it. I'll be reading a little bit from that later on because it has quotations from the God Makers in it. Now, of course, criticisms of the church aren't limited to written material. They've gone into film material recently. Uh, in 83, The God Makers came out, followed by its sequel, uh, Temple of the God Makers. And uh, after that, actually the most recent thing that's out is a little video by the same people called The Mormon Dilemma, is what it's called. And it seems like they finally figured out that by being so nasty and spiteful against the church, it was kind of hurting them. And so they came out with this one called The Mormon Dilemma, in which they're much nicer about things. I don't know that anything in it is necessarily more accurate, but they're much nicer in the way they present it. Um, all right. I think there are three different, main different types of criticisms of the church. Uh, I group them into these three categories. One is untruths, or you can call them lies, untruths, half-truths, and truths. Now the first one is untruths or lies, and I have a few that I'd like to share with you just so you can get an idea of some of the types of uh, claims, which are untruths, being disseminated about the church, and which are probably being taken in wholeheartedly by people who don't know any better. Let me go first here. In the book The Godmakers, which has been widely read, and of course the film has been even more widely seen, we have a few such things as this. Uh, 
most of these don't need comment because anyone who, who's a member of the church will find these laughable because they know better. Um, page 13 of the Godmakers uh, talks about Mormonism's darkest secrets that those privy to them have sworn upon penalty of death not to reveal. And also on that same page, talks about the, quote, temple rituals that even most Mormons have never seen, and the elite who have must keep it secret or be killed. Now, of course, anyone who's been to the temple knows how ridiculous that is. But fortunately, they're banking on the fact that most people who are going to be reading this haven't been to the temple and therefore might be eager to believe it. On page 72, uh, we have this quote. The Latter-day Saints are encouraged... Note that word encouraged to have encounters with the alleged spirits of the dead in and out of the temple. It is their belief that these encounters, though absolutely forbidden in the Bible, are the most sacred evidences that Mormonism is the only true religion. That's news to me. Page 136. Because Mormons reject the full value of Christ's blood poured out in death for sin on the cross, Mormons take bread and water at their communion services. So that's why we're taking bread and water, because we don't accept the full value of Christ. Otherwise, we take grape juice. Or we could have to be blood, eh? Yes, we could. <laughs> and I guess that would be really accepting the full value of Christ's blood if we actually drank blood and ate flesh. Uh, page 136, again, this is similar. Mormons have an almost fanatical aversion to the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So they were somewhat like vampires. We cannot stand the sight of the cross. Page 185, There. this is a quote. And by the way, this quote in the book is quoting Spencer Kimball. Okay? There are over 4,300 commandments in Mormonism. Now, the 4,300 commandments there is put in brackets. And it's interesting because, of course, President Kimball never said that. He just said that there are some commandments in Mormonism. But the 4,300 was added by the authors as though President Kimball had said them. As a matter of fact, I happen to know how they came up with this ludicrous number of 4,300 commandments. First off, I'm glad that there aren't that many because, you know, the bishop's interviews are long enough as it is, and I can't imagine how long they'd be if there were 4,300 commandments that you had to say that you were living before you went to the temple. But actually, I went to a presentation of Mr. Dick Bear, who was uh, an anti-Mormon, and uh, he held up a book when he made this claim. He said, they're all right here in this book, and I couldn't see it really from where I was sitting. So later on, I went up and I asked him, I said, uh, uh, do you mind if I look at this book? because I was very interested in seeing these 4,300 commandments I was supposed to be, be obeying. And he said, okay. And I guess I was surprised at that, because I went ahead and I looked at the book, and I picked it up and I thumbed through it, and it was a book by a general authority, though now I forget his name. Okay? Uh, he was a member of the first uh, quorum of the 70. Perhaps still is, I think. But what it was, it was a rather large book, something like this, about 600 pages. And when I say it was written by him, actually that's incorrect. It was compiled by him. What it was was an attempt to go through all four standard works, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, and assimilate every single verse that had a commandment in it. Whether it was a commandment to repent, a commandment to love, a commandment not to kill, a commandment not to covet, all the different types of commandments, take them all and then order them under different categories, like to love, to forgive. So these weren't all different types of commandments at all, but they were all there, at least as far as he could accumulate them, this general authority. And that is all that this entire book was, was an assimilation from the scriptures of different times where God has given commandments. And I looked at it, and there were tons of them. There were about seven on each page, I figured on an average, and I looked at it, and there were about 600 pages. So roughly speaking, I guess there were 4,300 commandments in that book. And so if you ever hear this again, which you may, these are the 4,300 commandments that Mormons are supposed to obey. And that is their source. Let me see, I have a couple more here. Oh, this is very interesting. This deals with our attempt to take over the world and something else that you'll find hopefully amusing. Quote, the Mormon Zion, this is from page 229 of the Godmakers, the Mormon Zion fits into an emerging pattern of increasing occult activity, leading to a one-world government that could well prepare for the fulfillment of biblical prophecies concerning Antichrist. To understand it properly, the Zion Kingdom must be viewed in the broader context of the planned Mormon takeover of the world. This is the real key, the secret hope Mormons cling to, and the basis for storing one year's supply of food, guns, and ammunition. Unquote. And the last thing here is another uh, quote that goes back a little bit to the first page, 234. It says, The obsessive Mormon ambition of world domination 
is openly denied today, but greatly plotted, unquote. So it must be very secret, because I don't know of any Mormons who have ever heard of it. At any rate, those are some of the things from the Godmakers. I'd like to share with you a few other, from other sources. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, they said that uh, the purpose of Zion is, is uh, world domination or something like that. Oh, that yeah, they were secretly right? plotting to take over the world. It's one of their main things. We call, we call Zion that secret, or I mean, because other churches refer to like Zion. And also, it's not like a... Well, what they're referring is what they consider to be our attempt to take over the world. That's why we have leaders, uh, some uh, members of the church who are in high positions in government. And basically the theory spiels out to be that we're trying to get a Mormon to be vice president so that the Danites, or in other words, so that we can assassinate the president, have him become president, and then rule the United States from a replica of the Oval Office, which is now in the Washington, D.C. temple. Okay, <laughs> that's the way that one plays out. Though, of course, it's a big question. If he's actually the president, why he has to go to a replica and can't rule from the White House? I don't know. But anyway, uh, this is from the Believer's Guide, December 1984, which is a, a Christian publication here in the Austin area. You heard of that? This was from, it's called an, an interview with ex-Mormon Kay Trimble. Now, she's an ex-Mormon. This is great because obviously she's going to know what she's talking about. She's been there, right? And she's also been in the temple, and so she comes up with a few things about that as well. Let me just read you a few interesting uh, things. This was when she went to the temple. Uh, she went to get married there. says, this was the goal we had for going into the temple, she and her husband, to be sealed to each other for time and all eternity. This took about 15 minutes. The rest of the six hours in the temple was spent in blood oaths and taking upon ourselves the signs and power of Lucifer. Okay? That sounds very impressive to someone who's never been to the temple and who is very eager to think the worst of Mormons. Then she says, uh, referring to uh, other things that happened in the temple, she says, They took my husband and I into this room and had a stand inside a circle. We said, and then she has a few words here, uh, which in Hebrew means, quote, O marvelous Lucifer or O marvelous false god. Well, in the circle on the floor were the names of these people who had apostatized from Mormonism and of Christian pastors. What we were doing was calling down curses upon them. When this was going on, my husband would not participate in any of this. He said the hair on the back of his neck was standing up, and he was terrified, unquote. Uh, let me just show you this, share this last uh, thing from here. The question is, what happened after you were married in the temple? Here's the answer. These are quotes directly from this. I began to get more deeply involved in Mormonism. I was using things from the ceremony that I shouldn't have. I began using Psalm 109 and putting people's names in it if I didn't like them. Now, all Mormons don't get into this. I was just singled out for the deeper levels. I was involved in witchcraft, although it wasn't anything I was aware that I was doing. I was cursing my neighbor, but I thought I had the right to do it because we had the truth. Um, then she says, my husband was in the bishopric when we got back from the temple, but he started getting inactive because of what was going on. After about a year, the bishop called me into his office and said I should divorce my husband. He said, if I wanted to be in the celestial kingdom, I should do this. And besides, the church would provide me with another husband, unquote. These are the types of just outright lies that are being told about the church. One last one here. I'm going to skip a number of these and go on with the rest of the lesson. But I find this one particularly ironic because this is a direct quote from the film The Godmakers, which is probably about ten times more people than ever took the time to read the book. The Godmakers. And of course, most churches, whoever would allow that to be shown in their church, now have it on video cassette as part of their library material so that it can be seen by anybody. You know, check it out, go home, show it to some friends. This is a quote. The Mormons thank God for Joseph Smith, who claimed that he had done more for us than any other man, including Jesus Christ. Unquote. So there's an idea of the types of things being told, complete untruths. Now, when it comes to responding to untruths, there's not so much you can say. There's only so much you can say. That, that's, that's wrong. It's a lie. It's not true. The reason why I bring it up is because I think it's important, if you can show these to people, or if you can see them yourself, you can begin to understand the type of people we're dealing with. You can begin to understand that, look, if he's going to lie outrightly about this, why should I necessarily take his word about something else? Is this the kind of person that I want to listen to for information about God? I think it's interesting that uh, most of these people, I've met uh, Dick there, he seems like a very nice guy. A lot of these people, I think, are very, very good Christians. It's just that when it comes to the subject of Mormonism, anything goes. 
It's okay to, to lie. It's okay to deceive. And actually, if, if you can get away with it, many of them feel that it's okay to murder. And we've seen that in the history of the church. And, of course, that was led primarily by the pastors of the other churches, who I'm sure were otherwise, except for you know murdering Mormons, were otherwise very good Christian people. And it's just kind of a paradox. Um, in Doctrine and Covenants section 10, the Lord speaks about people who think that it's okay to lie to the Mormons or to lie to people about Mormons because they believe that Mormonism is itself a lie. Of course, that's their, that's their, their uh, motivation. Since Mormonism is a lie, they believe, it's okay for us to lie and to deceive others. The Lord said about such people in Doctrine and Covenants section 10, verses 20 through 27, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that Satan has great hold upon their hearts. He stirs them up to iniquity against that which is good. And their hearts are corrupt and full of wickedness and abominations. And they love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil, therefore they will not ask of me. Satan stirs them up that he may lead their souls to destruction. And thus he has laid a cunning plan, thinking to destroy the work of God. But I will require this at their hands, and it shall turn to their shame and condemnation in the day of judgment. Yea, he stirs up their hearts to anger against this work. Now listen, here's where he spells it out, lying in order to catch someone else in a lie. Yea, Satan says unto them, deceive, and lie in wait to catch, that you may destroy. Behold, this is no harm. And thus he flatters them and tells them that it is no sin to lie, that they may catch a man in a lie, that they may destroy him. And thus he flatters them and leads them along until he drags their souls down to hell, and thus he causes them to catch themselves in their own snare. So the Lord has spoken about people who engage in this type of activity, and what he has said is not at all uh, pleasant or favorable. Let me go now to the second type of uh, criticisms of the church. These are the famous half-truths. All right, And I suppose about the most famous one of these, the one that does more damage that I've seen to people, is this wonderful half-truth. Did you know that Mormons believe that Christ and Satan are brothers? Now, every person here is a member of the church, and that doesn't bother you at all, does it? And the reason it doesn't bother you is because you already know all the other truths that make that one statement make perfect sense to you. All the other truths, which are that we believe that God is our Heavenly Father, the Father of our spirits, all our spirits, and that in the pre-existence, Lucifer was one of those, and so is Christ, Lucifer fell, etc. We know all that. But for some reason, and I'm not sure what it is, when that one statement is brought up to many people who are uh, Christians of one denomination or another, it really upsets them. It really does. I had an experience on the West Mall on campus where uh, we had the table up, and this was a couple of years ago. But we had the table up, and there was a, a person there from another church trying to find out a little bit about what we believed. And there were some critics there as well, uh, anti-Mormons, if you will, who were there trying to poison the minds of these people and whispering in their ears saying, well, ask them about this and ask them about that. And he came up and said, well, ask them about, uh, did you know that they believe that Christ and Satan are brothers? And he says, no way. And he comes up to me and says, do you believe that Christ and Satan are brothers? And I said, well, what we believe is that, and I started to lay the foundation so that he could understand this principle. He, said, he broke me off. He said, no, 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 just answer my question, yes or no. See, he'd been well prepared. Do you believe that Christ and Satan are brothers? And I began once again to try and lay the foundation for him. So you could understand that we believe that we're all brothers and sisters. He said, no, no, just answer yes or no. So I said, yes. And he just threw up his hands in disgust and said, you're lost, and went storming off. So for some reason, this has an impact on people. And that's one of the famous, uh, famous half-truths. Because you're only telling this part of the truth. You're not telling all the other truths, which make it so logical. As a matter of fact... Um, Ed Decker, who's a very famous uh, anti-Mormon, makes a, a quite a profitable living at it, actually, um, was on radio once, and he was being asked by this moderator, who was himself a Christian, but apparently a fairly fair-minded individual, and he heard about him talking, well, about that uh, Christ and Satan are brothers, and he says, well, look, the Mormons must have some reason for believing that. Would you present that to me in the way the Mormons have for, for believing that so it makes some sense? You know, just so that I can understand why they believe it. He refused to, d to do that. He refused to do that. He went off on some other subject. He knew perfectly well. The man was a member of the, the Latter-day Saints Church for years and years. He knows perfectly well why it made sense. But he refused <coughs> to do that because he didn't want to give away his advantage. Um, 
another type we can find here of a half-truth. Let me give you this, uh, this quote. This is a quote from Orson Pratt, found in the Journal of Discourses. And what this writer is trying to do is trying to show that Orson Pratt gave a different version of the first vision than Joseph Smith did. All right? That's what he's trying to do. I don't see really why it makes any difference since Orson Pratt's giving this years and years later, and he can say it any way he wants. The official version's already there. But this writer, Floyd McElveen, seems to think it important. All right? And this is what he says. This is a quote. Apostle Orson Pratt stated, now he's quoting from the Journal of Discourses, By and by, an obscure individual, a young man, rose up, and in the midst of all Christendom proclaimed the startling news that God had sent an angel to him. Dot, dot, dot. This occurred before this young man was 15 years of age, unquote. So here we have an angel coming to Joseph Smith before he's 15 years of age. That sounds a little bit strange to us, because we're aware that Moroni came when he was around 17, but he had the first vision before he's 15, right? Now, I hope you heard me when I said dot, dot, dot. I tried to emphasize it. That dot, dot, dot is known as ellipses. There are three dots that you see in the middle of a sentence sometimes when material is being quoted. Now, ellipses serve a very good editorial function, and that is that when you're quoting something, you don't have to, if you've got a piece here and a piece here that you want to use, you don't have to quote everything in between that's irrelevant to your cause. You just put a dot, 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 and you stick them together. Okay? So it serves a very good editorial function, but they can also be very easily misused, which means that if there's something in between that shows that what you're saying is false, you can just take it away. And very few people will take the time to look up and see what the dot, dot, dot was. In this instance, just to give you a, an example, I took that time and found something very interesting. Now remember, what he's trying to show is that an angel appeared to Joseph Smith before he was 15 years old, 15 years old, and that this is somehow a contradiction. Let me begin where he began. From the Journal of Discourses, volume 13, pages 65, an individual, a young man, rose up, and in the midst of all Christendom, proclaimed the startling news that God had sent an angel to him. Boom. This is what is in the space of the dot, 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 the ellipses, before he says, this occurred before this young man was 15 years of age. Here's what it says. Let's read it. Okay. This is the, the, the ellipses. That through his faith, prayers, and sincere repentance, he had beheld a supernatural vision, that he had seen a pillar of fire descend from heaven and saw two glorious personages clothed upon with this pillar of fire whose countenance shone like the sun at noonday, that he heard one of these persons just say, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And that's the ellipses. Then it says, this occurred before this young man was 15 years of age. Now, let me just tie this one up, and I'll get right to you. I'm sorry. Uh, the reason I show this to you is because I want you to understand this one principle. Never trust an anti-Mormon. Never trust an anti-Mormon. Never take it for granted that what they're telling you is correct, true, or anything. Because their purpose, really, by and large, is not to tell the truth. It's to get people away from Mormonism. All right. Now, you had a question? Joseph F. Smith once pointed this out in a debate with an anti-Mormon. He said, uh, well, you know what the Bible says, right? And he said, the Bible says, Judas hanged himself, dot, 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 go thou and do likewise. Yes, that's a great one. And you see, if you use the ellipses in the scriptures, you, what that's technically called is a scriptural rail split. That's a, that's a great one. You take a piece from here, and then you take a piece from somewhere else, and you put them together, and you've got a totally stupid uh, type thing. Like you've got uh, uh, Paul from 1 Corinthians 7. It is good for man not to touch a woman, and you take uh, God's command to uh, Adam and Eve, go and multiply and replenish the earth. And then you sit there and you say, well... God's giving contradictory commandments. And that's another example. That's a very, very good point. Um, we'll be dealing with a few types of things of half-truths, but the primary focus of this class is going to be dealing with the truth, the things the anti-Mormons say about us that are actually what we believe. And the way that this can be turned into sort of anti-Mormon literature is in two ways, I believe. First, it's by presenting deep doctrines to people or to members uh, before they are prepared for them. Okay? There's a systematic line of reasoning that members need to go through in order to learn progressively deeper doctrines. And that's the way the church is set up to teach those. Uh, there's a letter from Peter, Peter to uh, Clement, I believe it was. 
This is one of those epistles that for some reason or other didn't make it into the Bible. But in it, he makes a very lucid remark. And what he says is, he says, the doctrines of the gospel are such that if they're presented in order, they make perfect sense. But if they're presented out of sequence, they seem to contradict reason. And we see the same thing applies here. They need to be presented in order, in order for them to understand. Just like we're talking about Christ, Satan, being spirit brothers. That's presented out of sequence. You need to present those things in sequence. Um, another way that true things about uh, Mormonism are presented is that they're presented uh, as being in contradiction with teachings of the Bible. Okay, They're being presented in contradiction with teachings of the Bible, saying, well, the Bible says this, but the Mormons believe this. Okay, And whereas what they're saying about it really is true, they're actually, generally, uh, misusing the Bible. Now, the purpose of this course, the purpose is to learn how to Bible bash, okay? Sometimes I, I sort of humorously uh, say, I think it's humorous saying, I was thinking of naming the course, you know, How to Bible Bash in 12 Easy Lessons. But that's not the purpose of, the, of this course. Now, I must tell you, though, that some of the tools, skills, information you will learn here could just as easily be used to Bible bash as to teach someone. And generally, the difference between a Bible bash and a teaching situation is the type of person you're talking to. There's basically two types of persons. There's those types of people who want to argue, who want to prove you wrong, and who would not believe the truth if an angel of God came down, wrapped them on the head, and told them. Seriously, they would not. And those people, it's, it's wasted time. If, you're, if your intent is to get them to listen, to, to convert, it's wasted time, it's wasted energy. But then there's another large group of people who simply have questions. Perhaps they've heard a person like uh, that first group talking questions on their own. And they want to know the answer. I think people like that deserve an answer. And oftentimes that helps them to come to the church when they understand how much sense it makes. Now, I once had a companion when I was a stake missionary, who will go nameless, at least for right now. But uh, before I say it, let me preface it by saying that a testimony is, is essential. You have to have a testimony of the gospel. But I also think that you should have knowledge of the gospel and be able to answer people's questions. Okay? The testimony first, knowledge second. And the reason why I bring up this experience with, uh, with my stake missionary companion is because we were teaching a, a family about Joseph Smith's first vision. It was the first discussion. And uh, they were listening. They were very sincere. They weren't antagonistic. But the head of the household uh, said to him, said, uh, you know, doesn't it say in the Bible somewhere that... Men can't see God? And I thought that was a very natural question, something deserving of a response. But my companion took it almost personally and got upset about it and responded by saying, well, well, I know that Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus Christ in the first vision, and, and that's all there is to it. And so the other guy kind of backed down because he was cowed and he didn't want to get my companion any more upset. But I thought, you know, a testimony is important, but I think we should be able to answer questions. And we need to be able to be in that position, not only to bear strong testimony, but to answer sincere questions when they're raised. Um, third part, who am I? Why am I teaching this course? Well, I'm teaching this course because I begged to be able to teach it, basically. But the reason why I'm teaching it uh, is because I have had many experiences in this area. I have found that through knowledge, I've been able to help a number of people. And I'd like other people to be able to help others as well. Uh, perhaps it's enough to say that uh, I got interested in it because my brother is a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know. Maybe that explains a lot. But uh, he was a Jehovah's Witness when I joined the church. And I came home a few months after I joined the church. And, and he had brought home from his uh, kingdom hall, okay, from the kingdom hall, a little yellow uh, folder and on the front of it was stenciled in pencil letters or stenciled the Mormon file. And he brought that home for me to read. And so I, I read some of the stuff that was in there, and I was just shocked. I couldn't believe it, because I'd never been presented with any of this before. And I was just uh, dumbfounded. Uh, but I got over it. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> most of it. Most of it, Ricky. Thank you. But let me tell you the way I got over it, okay? I got over it because I didn't let it destroy me. I got out and I started asking questions. I went to the missionaries. I went up to them and I said, look, do we believe that Adam's God? And they go, no. I said, oh, thank you. I, I was really worried because this guy over here, he said that we did. Just keep asking. Keep searching. Keep trying to find out. Don't lie down and die. 
This reminds me of another example of a friend I had who I actually introduced to the church, baptized, got him into the church. He uh, really didn't come to his meetings very often, and he didn't come to firesides, he didn't read the scriptures, he didn't, I don't know if he was praying, but he wasn't doing any of these other things that keep you growing, keep you alive in the church. And uh, he went to Dallas once, a friend met him, gave him a copy of this book, actually, in its reprinted form, The Mormon Illusion. He took that book, he read it from cover to cover, underlined it, marked it, he knew that book inside and out, you see. And he had his name withdrawn from the records of the church, and that was very bitter against the church because of that. So you have to keep looking. You have to keep doing effort on your own and uh, not succumb. Because it's my testimony that if you do, you will find the answers. Um, I also think that it's important for us individually to be prepared to defend the faith. I think that if you have a country, United States, whatever country, that is building up or preparing to defend itself, of course, you can't include Japan in this, but if you're building up to defend yourself, then you become strong through that process. Even if you may never use that uh, defensive power, but you become strong through that process. And so I think it helps us individually to be prepared to defend the faith. And also, you will find yourself in great demand in the church to help out people who have problems or questions. All right. Part four of the lesson, how to become a defender of the faith. You have to work. You have to work hard. You have to know. First off, let's say you have to have a testimony of the church. That's the first prerequisite. If you don't, go out and get one right now. I think they're having a sale on down at the corner, as a matter of fact. I saw the sign as I came in. Seriously, you have to get a testimony of the church. You have to know the doctrines of Mormonism. You have to know what we believe. You also have to be familiar with the history and all the ins and outs of it as well. Okay? And you have to have read and be familiar with every single word in all four standard works. And yes, I'm sorry, that includes the Old Testament as well. You have to know what it says. And this is the analogy that I use to this. You see, if you don't know... Within these books, it's like you're in a house, okay? You're living in a house that has, say, a room over here is all dark, and you don't know what's in that room. And maybe uh, the kitchen over here is black, and you don't know what's in that room. And you're walking around in this house, you see, and you don't know what's lurking in that room. There could be some terrible thing in that room that any second is going to jump out and scare you. And you're going to say, my goodness, where did that come from? I didn't know that was there. I thought I was ready, Okay. In the same way, if you don't know what's in the Old Testament, what's in here, what's in here, you never know if someone's going to pull something out that you'd never heard of. And you're going to be left with your pants hanging down. Right? Right. So. Hopefully there's tongue hanging out. Tongue hanging out. Well, whatever. In an embarrassing situation with egg on your face. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you. So much for you. Uh, but you have to know. You have to know what's in there. Because if you don't, people may, or you'll just be scared of the fact that they're going to hang out, pull out a skeleton and go boo in front of you and shake it in front of you, and you'll be scared. Um, one of the purposes of this class is to get some of those skeletons out, perhaps in a friendlier atmosphere, show them to you here, and then let you see that they're nothing but a bunch of dead bones, and it's nothing to be scared of, all right? And so that then you'll be able not to be scared or concerned if someone should shake that same skeleton at you sometime later. Now, not only do you have to know what the scriptures say, you also have to know what they don't say. And unfortunately, I think that's maybe a little bit more difficult to know what scriptures don't say as opposed to what they do say. Let me give you an example that I had out here uh, on the West Mall again. We'll be returning time and again, I'm sure, to the West Mall where all these wonderful experiences happen. But there was a certain Christian group, uh, some fraternity, I don't remember their name, I don't think it's important, but they had a table up, and, I, and it was one of these days when everybody had their table up. It's a designated day, have your table up. And the Lutherans are giving away apples, and these people had their own setup. And I went down to this particular group, and I started talking with them. And it was a young, uh, an oriental uh, man, I don't know, he may have been Korean probably, uh, a Korean fellowship. And I was talking with him about my belief in Christ, and that... Uh, you just really need to follow after him and obey his commandments and do those things. And he was agreeing with me completely because that's how I realized that that's not how he was supposed to feel, but that uh, it was just through grace. And so there, another person came in and took over for him when he saw that uh, this, this guy wasn't uh, responding appropriately, and he started talking to me. And he found out eventually that I was uh, a Latter-day Saint. And uh, he said, ah, well, you're a cult. So wait a second, what makes you say I'm a cult? And well, darn if he didn't whip out a brochure and... There's my name with some other names, and it says right next to it, cult. So I guess I was a cult. And he had it right there in black and white. I was a cult. So um, 
But uh, I said, well, why? Why do you say I'm a cult? Why do you say we're a cult? And he said, he started going off this litany of questions. Well, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you believe he was a savior? Yes. Well, do you believe in this and that? Yes. And he said, well, do you believe in the Trinity? And I said, no. He said, ah. And he puts back with a smug look on his face. Okay, now I've got it. Now we see why you're a cult. <laughs> and so we entered into a little discussion about the nature of the Godhead. And we'll do that. We'll have a whole class devoted to that later on in the semester. But uh, the main point was that uh, I was explaining to him how in, in John 17 it talks about how God the Father and Christ are one, the same way as his apostles should be one. And he was saying, no, but it says in the Bible, it says in the Bible that God the Father and Jesus Christ are one substance. And I looked him dead in the eye, and I said, no, it does not. And he had to sit back. Because he knew perfectly well he was trying to bluff me. I knew perfectly well he was trying to bluff me because I knew there's no place in the Bible that says that. Okay? And so he had to go back on himself. Uh, don't let people bluff you. If you know what the scriptures say and what they don't say, you can keep people from bluffing you. Whenever I talk about bluff, I'm reminded of this wonderful story about Elder Richards, who was his own leader. He was on the campus. Yes, once again, we're over here on the West Mall. And there was a, a guy who was rabid against the Mormons on this particular day, and he was out there standing and screaming. And he was sitting there screaming about the Journal of Discourses and all the things that were in it, you know, and how could you believe that? And he's saying, have you ever read the Journal of Discourses? And Elder Richard said, yeah, I have. He goes, no, you have not. He says, I have. And he goes, are you kidding us? 24 volumes. You're telling me you've read the entire Journal of Discourses? He goes, look, don't believe me. I don't care, but I have. He says, and you still believe everything that's in there? He goes, yeah, I don't see any problem with it. And he goes, ah, and he goes off on some other subject. And after he left, I sat down next to Elder Richard. I said, Elder Richard, you know, that's pretty impressive. You've read all the Journal of Discourses? That's incredible, 24 volumes. And he looks at me and says, I haven't read the Journal of Discourses. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if I would recommend that. <laughs> that's what I always think of when I think of someone's bluffing. <laughs> okay, now we're to the last part of today's class. Two answers that you can give if you don't know the answer. All right? And generally, uh, for most of us, that's the majority of the time, right? Okay? Of course, as you go along, as you continue to study, you learn more and more, and you're able to answer better. But let me give you two great answers, if you don't know the answer. Answers that will put an end to the controversy. The first one is found in Alma 3711. We can open to that, if anybody here has their scriptures. And let me tell you that today's class is an introductory class, but from now on I would encourage you to bring your scriptures and a pen and marking stuff, because you can mark up a storm and get a lot of good information from this class. Alan 3711, he's talking to his son, one of his three, and this is what he's talking about. He's talking about some kind of doctrine. He gets to the conclusion, he says, 3711, Now these mysteries are not yet fully made known unto me, therefore... I shall forbear. So what's he saying? I don't know. He says, I don't know the answer. Okay, This wasn't like a question answer, but he was going along and said, I'm going to stop now because I don't know. That is so wise. If you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. As a matter of fact, you might want to practice that in front of the mirror so you can get it down. I don't know. Because what that does is it immediately stops any further inquiry along that line. What good is it in continuing to ask someone something if they don't know? No good. So, say if you don't know, say, I don't know. And as a matter of fact, that phrase can be useful in other situations. And I'll give you a I didn't want to tell what the heck it was. I was in my religious liberty seminar over here at law school, and there's about 12 people in the classroom. I just... Done, been, I just completed giving my paper dealing with uh, persecutions of the, of the Mormons in Missouri, okay, and legal complications and all that stuff, you know. But uh, it was over, questions were being asked. Rick Rutledge, who is uh, a, a real born again fundamental type guy, who's also in law school, looked at me and, in order to try and put me kind of, I think, on the spot, he says, Well, why was it that the Mormons never gave, didn't, wouldn't give the priesthood to the, to the blacks? It had nothing to do with what we've been talking about. So I kind of think he was trying to put me on the spot. Why was that? Did I begin a lengthy discussion about the pre-existence, about uh, all sorts of other things that we'll cover later on? No. I just said, 
I don't know. Shut him right up. And nobody thinks any less of you. Don't think that people are going to think less of you because you don't know the answer. What, okay? What did he say? He said, why didn't they give the priesthood to the blacks? Or yeah. So why was it for so long that the Mormons wouldn't get... For so long. Yeah. Okay. That the Mormons wouldn't get a priest of blacks. I don't know. It says, oh. And then we went on to something else. And that's the way I wanted it. And so that's the way I, I used the answer. Now let me give you the second answer if you don't know the answer. And it can be used in many other situations, too. So don't think I'm limiting it to if you don't know the answer. Second answer is... Use the Book of Mormon. Use the Book of Mormon. Because the Book of Mormon is the answer to all questions. All right? Follow this four-step process. It'll work for you every time. One, identify the objection. In other words, make sure that you know what this person is objecting to. Nothing is more stupid than to go for a half an hour answering this person's question, make a beautiful discourse, tie a bow, give it to him on a silver platter, and then have him say, well... That's not the question I was asking. Find out for sure at the beginning what the question is that's being asked. After that, answer the question from the Book of Mormon, from the Doctrine and Covenants, or you can just state the church's position on it. You don't necessarily have to go to Scripture if you don't know where it is. Just state what the church's position is on it. Okay? Anybody give me an example? Give me an example. Brother Sill, can you give me an example? Or Word of wisdom? Why don't, why don't we drink? Fine. Okay, great. That's a good one, because you can just open here to Doctrine and Covenant, section 89, show them this, okay? And the first thing that they'll say is, well, wait a second, I don't accept the Doctrine and Covenant. So, you know, that doesn't make any difference to me. Show it to me from the Bible. This comes, now comes step number three, all right? And step number three is inform the person and show them that the answer to his question boils down to whether or not we actually have revelation in the church today. Because any question that anyone has boils down to that in the end. This is a perfect example. Well, we don't partake of liquor because we have a revelation here. You don't believe the revelation, but that gets us down to the real crux of the matter. Do we have revelation? If we have revelation, this is from God. And if it's from God, you better get your life in line with it. I love the people who... Somehow, like I have an aunt who went around from church to church once she moved. Uh, she's a fundamentalist and she's a Baptist. And she refused to join any church that would not allow her to dance because she liked to dance. Therefore, she looked around for a church that fit her religious beliefs. I think that that's a wrong way to do things and then conform your behavior to what God wants you to do. All right. So, it's whether or not we have revelation. Okay, so that's step three. And step four is where the Book of Mormon comes in. If the Book of Mormon is true, if it's really the Word of God, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. If Joseph Smith was a prophet, this church is true. You can believe what it teaches. That makes perfect sense. I've never met a single individual in my entire life who has argued with that proposition. All right? It's flawless. Then the question becomes, is the Book of Mormon true? Is it the Word of God? And I think you all know exactly what I'm driving at. What scripture do you open to at this point? Uh, yeah. Right, and you show them Moroni's promise, which is actually God's promise. We call it Moroni's promise, but it's God's promise. That if you read this book, if you sincerely ponder it and pray to God in the name of Christ about it, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. So once they know that the Book of Mormon is true, they know Joseph Smith was a prophet, they know we have revelation, and they know that we're not supposed to be drinking alcohol get back to Ricky's question, right? See that complete and direct chain there. Now, this is good if you don't know the answer. It's also good if you have people who are being antagonistic. All right? Uh, I had an experience over here in the library. We were teaching three young people, and uh, they weren't really sincere in listening. I was trying to teach them about the plan of salvation, and they kept coming up and says, well, wait a second, the Bible says this and this, or... That, that, that interpretation of your scripture is wrong, you know, or whatever you're saying, and just whipping around and just confuting me everywhere, and I couldn't get out a single straight sentence. So finally I got fed up with it, and I told them what the Book of Mormon was, I told them about the promise, and I said, look, here's a Book of Mormon, you read it, you study it, you pray about it, and you'll find out it's true. And then I left. Because what that does is it takes the burden of proof off me or off us as members 
and it puts it on them. No longer are we sitting there trying to prove something against their hard-headed resistance. But now we can just take it and say, look, here, you prove it to yourself. And God will tell you if you put this test to the promise, or promise to the test, excuse me. Well, this is primarily the end. Yeah, we're out of time. This is the end of the first lesson. Through the next uh, coming weeks, next 11 weeks actually, we're going to be talking more in specific about different criticisms of the church, why those criticisms are invalid, and hopefully, I think assuredly, uh, strengthening our testimonies that we can understand not only that the church is true, but why it's so true, and come away with a greater testimony, a greater knowledge, and a greater desire to share this testimony with other people. And also to help people who are in the church and outside the church understand better what it is we teach. I want you to know that I have a testimony of this church. I know that it is the church of God. And I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I don't say that lightly. But I do know these things because they have been revealed to me. And I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Next week's uh, topic will be uh, criticisms of the Book of Mormon. So please bring your scriptures and something to write with if you want to take away that information with you. So that is me from 30 years ago with lecture number one in my institute class called Defending the Faith. And that is why this episode is titled Radio Free Mormon Defender of the Faith. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.